leading multi-platform storytelling. Welcome to another Story Labs podcast. For more info, go to storylabs.us. Thank you. Uh, so my role over the last 20-something years has been building online communities, virtual forums, bulletin boards, social media sites, whatever you want to call it. Uh, the title changes, but the job doesn't really a great deal. Um, and I'll show you some examples of that. Uh, today I want to show you a few things that I've been uh, working on and also uh, some stuff from some of my clients, um, a little of, of that, not too much, but mostly it's about frameworks and structure. Actually, let's break out of the death by PowerPoint for a moment. There's a very interesting shift now with big data, and I think this is something that uh, Gunther really hit on. And I'm wondering, how many people here have got a, a personal Facebook account, please? Okay, so this is shorthand. This is what Facebook's doing with your data. And I think when you see what's happening with big, big data here, it might be interesting to you. I'm going to go to the ads section. Uh, you don't have to actually create an ad. This is just a tool for marketing research. Um, I'm putting in any old website. So in this case, Screen Australia. <laughs> and once I've put in a website in the facebook.com slash ads area, I get access to this marketing intelligence, this big data that Facebook's aggregating. And so it says to me that in the last 30 days, 11,755,640 uh, people have logged into Facebook in the last 30 days and done something. If they just log in and read and leave, like your mum logs in, reads your comment and then calls you to say, why did you have to put that up on Facebook? Um, she's not counted. This is somebody who has to leave a digital trail behind. Once they leave that trail behind, Facebook tracks it and tracks it forever and ever and ever. So we can see here that 13 and over is 11.755. Now if I take a typical demographic of 25 to 34 year old females, I can see the number shifts there and it says just under 3 million Australians have logged in that fit the 25 to 34-year-old females around Australia in the last 30 days. So this is live, live, large data, big data. I can then go into family status and say, I want to target my ad for my new movie, which is a feel-good rom-com about a couple bringing up a young baby. I want to target engaged, expecting parents, newlyweds, um, one year and six months, maybe engaged for a year that they're probably not thinking about babies if they've been engaged for a year, but whatever. But there we are. We can see we've got uh, 214,260 women between 25 and 34 in the last 30 days have exhibited behaviours, not declarative. They didn't go on and say or ring up Facebook and say, I've just got engaged, I thought you should know. What they do is they put up an ultrasound or they talk about um, getting engaged, or there's congratulations on their status updates for woohoo, got a ring, or whatever it is that they've done in the last 30 days. These are the behaviors. And you know, Facebook's watching your behaviors because 30 days ago, you were out and Facebooking photographs of your vodka martinis and 
on status updates about spending all your money on a new pair of shoes and all those sort of things and suddenly your behaviors change and you join essentialbaby.com.au and you put up images of ultrasounds and you create a Facebook page for your baby and because of course we have to biographize their life even when they're in the womb um, and so on and so forth. So this is how big data starts to shift and change. And if I take it out of the broader categories, I can also now say, show me men in those age groups who like horror, horror films. And Facebook does that thing that Gunter was talking about, which is collects all the keywords and starts to display other keywords. So when these people are talking about horror films, they also talk about action films. I don't know why they talk about Skittles for horror films, but whatever. Um, and you can start to go through and extra extrapolate out exactly the number of Australians who in the last 30 days have talked about and acquired those keywords for themselves. And it's interesting for me because when I'm doing this around music, for instance, if um, One Direction comes to Australia, then the numbers go through the roof of parents talking about One Direction, of kids talking about One Direction, of people going, I hate One Direction. Um, and so when there are concerts here, the volume of data and the volume of information we know about them goes up and then it drops back down again. So it's just an interesting use of big data within social networks and perhaps one of the reasons why it's important. So back to death by PowerPoint. <clears throat> yeah, no, whatever. Uh, I set up the community crew, although my company, World Communities, I've been running since 1992, I set up the community crew a few years ago, mostly to do what I call customer service to marketing and PR. So we actually do the frontline stuff in social media sites and community sites. And one of the reasons for that is we discovered that um, customers never line up to speak to marketing or PR. They're just not interested. They want to go straight past them and go straight to the person who can engage with them, give them actual answers to their problems. By the way, all the slides I'm showing you are available on slideshare.net. And you can also go to my Flickr account, which is Silk Charm, if you want to download some of the just the diagrams themselves. I've been teaching at the University of Sydney for around seven years. Uh, this style of course that I'll be quickly going through with you today. And I'm also a top blogger according to Marketing Magazine and Forbes named me in the top 50 social media influencers globally um, around um, social media. Most of my clients <clears throat> are in Australia, the Middle East and Asia. And I've worked with Middle East Broadcasting, Singaporean Properties, and here in Australia with Sony, I'm currently with Universal. And so I work a lot across film and television and creative properties, as well as your telecommunication communities and that sort of thing as well. I want to show you a little bit about a background um, of something that happened to me well, uh, through YouTube. We noticed that they had these really fantastic bio suits. But then... They make people uncomfortable. You don't, we don't know what they think, how they think, what they So this uh, short film is a piece called Alive in Joburg. It's by Neil Blomkamp, who um, some of you may have heard of. And I very first saw this video when Guy Gadney showed it in 2006, June 2006, at uh, Guy and Someone's Most Excellent Adventure, uh, which was a, just a forum like this. And what I thought was interesting 
was that the film had properties that I thought could potentially go viral. So I contacted Spy Films and they had the film up on their site, but they didn't have it in any form embeddable, distributable or, any, or shareable in any way. In fact, it wasn't even discoverable. I found out about it because I went to a live event. So I said to them, can I put your video up on YouTube? And they said, yeah, right, but you have to put our name in it. So I made sure that it had Spy Films on the name. I put the film up and for about 18 months, it had about 120 views. I used to ask um, the students that I taught at AFTAS to go and look at it, and I know most of them didn't bother. So that's why it was under 120 views. And suddenly it started going up in the thousands. Every hour, more, a thousand more, a thousand more, a thousand more views. And you know, being a social media guru, I thought, hmm, something must be going on. And I thought I'd better go and investigate what was going on. And what we saw is a classic, what I call a J-curve in take up in social media, where nothing happens for ages if you leave it on its own. And suddenly it gets ahead of steam. And you have to try and figure out why. What is it that connected this social object, this story, with a community? And this, what I discovered was that um, Neil Blomkamp, the only video available of anything online that was discoverable on YouTube was this one. And the news had just been uh, made that he was going to be directing a movie about Halo the game. So that led to Kotaku and then a whole lot of gamer websites with millions of daily readers all looking for a piece of content to show the style that he might make of a movie about Halo. This was it the one piece that they could find. So they put it up on their sites and then Fox Entertainment and some of the other entertainment sites embedded this video as well. And so that's why there was this massive take up. It was about the gamer blogs picking it up first of all and then rippling out by having a piece findable, filterable and uh, forwardable. It meant that it could be sent out and rippled out onto the f further into the networks. There is a little uh, additional piece of information I'd like to give you here, and that is that when Peter Jackson said that he chose Neil Blomkamp to make a movie, District 9, based on a short film called Alive in Joburg, he specifically said, I saw the short film on YouTube and thought it might be possible as a full-featured property. So whether your video has 10 views, three quarters of a million views or you go Gangnam style and have 700 million views, doesn't seem to matter a huge amount as long as it is discoverable by quality people, you know, it doesn't have to be large volumes of people, it needs to be the right people who find it, discover it and then make, and then do something with it. When I'm looking at connecting uh, the social objects, the stories with the communities and start to see things, you know, the next thing that I can do on YouTube is look at who embedded this video, put them on my list and make sure that I have an outbound blogger relationship policy which when part two goes up I contact those guys so I don't have to wait another year and a half for the viral effect to take effect. I don't tend to work so much with what we call circulation in social media which is where you create a Facebook page and you just talk to the 200 people on that page. For me, social media, media means mediums. It doesn't mean the story. It doesn't mean the content. It means the channel. And it's people are the channel. The minute they see something, watch it, view it, read it, the very next thing they should be doing is this, sharing it. And if they're not sharing it, 
then it's not fully social media because I'm not activating the social channel. I'm simply broadcasting and I'm using social media as a broadcast channel. Um, if, if it can happen naturally on its own, it'll be great. I'm working with Universal a little bit on uh, Pitch Perfect and Les Mis and programs like that. When this sort of thing happened where Lady Gaga tells her millions and millions of fans on Twitter uh, that she loved a video with Rebel Wilson on it, we can see the viral, or we can see the social media effect here. There are 4,200 retweets and two and a half thousand people have favorited it. But that retweet means that they've activated the ripple effect and they're forwarding that tweet on to their friends. So circulation says the millions of people Lady Gaga talked to were important, and absolutely they are. The fact that then four and a half thousand then send it on to their network and their network and their network, that to me is the full social media effect. And of course, Rebel comes back with less fans, but still gets 316 retweets saying thank you very much. So between the dialogue of these two people, we can see that there's a whole lot of stuff going on out there that builds buzz that we actually had no part in, except potentially to see the original um, video. There's oh, thousands of pages that I could choose for this. Um, these, these final hours is a great project that I worked on last year as part of this lab. And you can see they've got 700 likes, uh, but classically in the early days of filmmaking with a Facebook page, it tends to be all about we're making the film. So here's the final call sheet for the movie. And then another project from last year as well, the Facebook page again is about set building. It's not about extending the story world, it's not about the storyline, it's actually about dropping the fourth wall, and it collects usually a very engaged group of other filmmakers and initial ardent fans as well. And that brings me to the point which is perhaps a, some challenge out there is about getting that initial community built and who are you going to go after. In the 1990s, Dr. Jacob Nielsen came up with the 99-1 rule and he said that 90% of audiences are consumers only. And if you think about your own behaviours, you probably do the same thing. You Google articles, you read the articles, you go, meh, meh. It's not interesting to you, you don't forward it, you don't do anything with it. 9% of the time, you respond. You might like it, you might Facebook it, share it, you might write, that's great. Or if you're on YouTube, you might say, you're a dishbag. Whatever takes your fancy. But it's not about creating deep content. It's about finding, filtering, and forwarding. Discovering, discussing, distributing. The social media channel in action. I actually think the figures are very different today. In fact, Forrester report says that 26% of Australians are creating content and uploading them every month. For that deep 1% level of people creating original content, 26% of Australians are doing it. And mostly they're doing it because they can now connect their mobile phone and their camera to their Facebook personal account and they can video things and put it up online. And you would think, well, compared to a cinema experience, you know, videos of the kids playing in the front yard. But in the attention economy where you only have a certain number of hours in the day and those hours can be taken up with different things that prioritise or how you prioritise your day, you can see that 26% engagement 
in homegrown media would be um, quite a challenge in an attention economy. I'll come back to that one in a moment. So the nine steps that I do to build an online community. The first one is purpose and value systems. Why do they want to be there? And why are you going to be there? And if you look at uh, the from shallow to deep social media engagement, the very obvious things that people first want to do is they want to monitor. And even having a look at that Facebook ads marketing research, you just kind of just sometimes just want to dive in and go, how many people like surfing movies? Or how many people like rom-coms? And just trying to play around, monitor, see what other things they like, what do they talk about? The next couple of levels up are broadcast. You know, here's a photo of our set, here's a photo of our director talking to a star, here's a photo of our director on the set talking to a star. It's all about our content, push, push, push. Then we shift into viral, and viral is where you're trying to activate the community to do this finding, filtering, and forwarding. So it gets to be, here's a photo of a car in our film. Please, if you like it, please click like. If you don't, please share it and tell us why. Trying to get that, um, that activated forwarding on into the community thing happening. The campaign is step number five. And a lot of organisations come to me and say, can we have a social media campaign? We'd like to start it next week and finish it in four weeks. Which is fine if you already have a community that you can go in and just play with and feed them some more content. They're the hungry beast. But if you don't yet have an engaged community, those timeframes are a little unrealistic unless you shift to bought media instead of earned media. If you're willing to buy their attention, then you can take out big ad expensive campaigns and buy their attention in a short amount of time. Probably could have done that for the Alive in Joburg if I was so interested. But normally it's about earned attention. It's about seeding it to the right communities and building the right relationships. So doing a campaign in the next six weeks is unlikely. I will come back to that though. We do do it from time to time and I'll explain how we do it. And the last couple of steps are where we're getting truly into stories belonging to the people. I was watching um, a story unfolding around the tragic missing of a young girl in Melbourne. And as I was on her Facebook personal profile, in fact, I had to work out which one was hers. There was a, she had a fairly common name. I w was looking at her photos and I was looking at people. She had about 20 friends and they were debating why she was missing and how she was missing. And they named someone that they thought might be responsible. So being nosy, I checked out his page as well, and there were some very strange behaviours going on. And it was fascinating because when two young men were arrested and made responsible for the fact that she was missing, the community rejected that story and said, no, we think it's this other guy. And eventually the police let those two guys go and arrested this fellow that they had nominated, a 47-year-old. And as I watched this story unfolding, it was compelling and it was addictive and it was real life. And I thought, this is the community thinking everything's about CSI or about um, law and order and that uh, where is the storyline here? Where is the reality? Where is the fiction? So there's some interesting plays that are happening as all stories become revealed within a community. We just did that, we don't need to go through it step by step. You, why are you doing this? And the community, why are they interested in it? And that's the big one, because you have to keep coming to the why, why, why's that Lance often talks about. 
why you're doing this, but why you're doing that. Why are they interested in it, but why would they be interested in it? You know, so we can tell them about more stuff. Um, I think is something that a lot of organisations kind of need to really get down to the values of the community, not the, necessarily the purpose. And the hidden reasons, not everybody reveals their real reasons for joining your community. If I was to ask you, how many films do you think have been made to promote product placement? I think you would say very few. Not many films get made so that you can just show that car. I do sometimes wonder about the minis in that, um, oh, I've forgotten the movie now, but yeah, The Italian Job. It was a remake of an old movie and the cars featured really prominently and the whole thing read a little bit like a big ad. But let's face it, the minute the product placement overwhelms the story, you kind of go, you know, not sure about this. When I'm working with communities, I have to be very careful that we're not building the community as a form of doing product placement for the film into that community because the community is not stupid and they won't look at a community which is either for a new product coming out for a company or a new film coming out for a studio and then not think, oh, I think I'm being marketed to. So the community and the reason for the community is around interaction, storytelling, wanting to be part of the whole experience. It has to be an experience, not a marketing con job. I will come sometimes through that in some of the other steps. So I worked with EverQuest Online, I worked with Ultima Online, I worked with Dransic, Ash and Empires, a whole lot of games through a portal called Stratix, which was the number one gaming portal in the 1990s. And with EverQuest, one of the things that we discovered was that people were there to play the game EverQuest and fulfill the quests, but they were also there for sex. There was a lot of cyber sex going on and I got quite an education also in porn, but that's another story. Um, but recognising that one of the reasons why you have sexy characters in your games is because there is an underlying thing around sex around multiplayer games. With uh, Ultima Online, which was like a 2D isometric sort of-ish world, maybe not, but um, it was about stuff. So who had the best swords, the best uh, horse, the best whatever, collecting things, aspirational lifestyle in a virtual environment. And lastly, with Dransic and Ashen Empires, it was about reputation and standing. Who was the best killer? Who was the best guild leader? Who was the best person running events or doing different things? So it was about reputation and trust within that community. And once we knew those three things, we could hook things into the game or into the social properties, which would allow us to build a full community around the hidden agendas, not just the obvious agendas for that community. However, communities don't really change. This was an idea that I played with for one of the big banks about four years ago, and I said, what if we were to build an online pin board that was about aspirational lifestyle and people could pin images of things that they wanted to achieve and we would put timelines against it and their community would help them achieve their goals and then Pinterest came out. So a lot of the things that were already being done, and I know this one here looks really old fashioned compared to Pinterest, um, but it's often the same behaviours being exhibited in new ways with a kind of funkier, cooler, more modern look each time. 
The next thing we ask is spaces and tools. What can I do in this community? The consumer or the member or the audience wants to know, what can I do? Am I just going to sit here and look at what you're giving me? Are you going to just give me photos of things and videos of things and tell me maybe I could take a photo, maybe I can upload it, but everything else you've done for me? Or can I get involved in your story? And the spaces that we look at today are around forums and Facebook pages. There's ecosystems or extended networks and communities where instead of having everything on your own Facebook page, you have to go out there. You have to go find the werewolf community online for your werewolf movie. Or you have to go and find the singles communities for the rom-coms. Something like that. <laughs> Actually, as a bit of an aside, in Singapore, I worked with uh, the Singapore government, both the Health and the Ministry of Defence and a number of them, and they came up with a great idea because Singapore had a diminishing childbirth rate that the government would run a singles site to matchmake singles in Singapore. It's called Romancing Singapore. And when you go there, they run events. Every Friday night they do cruises up and down the river and they take they book out theatres and do different things. And then they kept threatening to shut it down because there were too many playboys on the network who weren't interested in a long-term relationship leading to marriage and babies. And I felt like saying, I could have told you that. <laughs> They're here too. So don't let governments run your romantic love life through an online community is one lesson I can tell you from that one. Um, but you know, it has to do again with the purpose that the government wanted to run the community for is not the actual purpose of a lot of dating sites out there. Who would have thunk it? Um, ecosystems, newbie areas, prison and moderator areas, so a social network ecosystem. The World of Warcraft game has around 11 million monthly players. They invested between 240 and 260 million dollars in the game since 2004, in fact before 2004. And that includes development of the game, 40,000 quest lines or storylines, um, teams and teams of writers. It also includes all of their customer service and all their infrastructure costs. So 260 million dollars all up since 2004. However, they make 1.1 billion dollars a year in profit. Um, so if you ever wonder why money is, people who are investing money are thinking game, film, game, film, and there's such a big move towards franchise now, it's because with something like World of Warcraft, clearly the profits are there year on, year after year after year, without a huge amount of additional cost. You know, that world is still going very well. There's a whole bunch of the ecosystem, such as the WoW wikis and the... Um, Thoughtbots. These are sites that are, are fan-based sites that actually have as much traffic, if not more, as the official Blizzard-supported sites. So allowing room and movement for machinima, mashup video sites, setting up uh, economies, that sort of thing, is a, is a clear part of the ecosystem. When I talk about API-based monetization in a minute, uh, what I'm talking about there, application programming interface, technical term, don't worry about it. What it means is that Amazon opens up their database so that sales can be completed on Facebook. Or eBay opens up their database so that the bidding can be completed on Facebook. You don't have to leave Facebook and go back to eBay to complete the transaction. When we look at that, 
and we look at the number of iPhone and iPad apps that were made, around 35,000 developers signed up for eBay and Amazon to make iPad, iPhone and Android apps. And they did an 83% increase in sales in their first um, in their first quarter once they opened up their database and said people don't have to come to ebay.com to do their bidding. They can do it on an iPhone app or on a Facebook page and we won't create those apps or those pages. We will allow other people to do that. So the minute you can open it up to the ecosystem, you get this massive ripple effect happening. And I often talk about having a um, a blog or a website or a microsite in the hub and then having that work the spokes. And there's two kinds of spokes. There's content spokes such as YouTube for your videos, visually for your infographics, script for your ebooks, um, Lulu for your graphic novels, whatever it is. They're content, deep content sites. And then your distribution sites such as Twitter. You can't write war and peace on Twitter but you can link to it. Unless you're Lance and then you can. <laughs> But it is a little crazy thing to do, and I think even he would admit that. The third thing we have to do is we make lists of influencers. We decide what kind of influencer they are and how big a ripple do they create. Lady Gaga tweeting something about pitch perfect is manna from heaven, but that sort of unpaid, unasked for attention from a key influencer like Lady Gaga is unusual. Unless you're tipping or touching one of the hot spots that that particular celebrity has. And I would go so far as to say with Kim Kardashian, the hot spot is money. So $80,000 will get you a tweet. With others, we've had situations, for instance, where Miranda Kerr, the model, has sent out a video about um, a short film around dolphins because that's very much within her oeuvre, within her value systems. So identifying the key influences and working with them now, you don't have to go for top-level A-grade celebrities or even B-grade. You can work with others. Um, you can work with the top bloggers, the top Twitterers, the people who aggregate, find, filter and forward information. Maybe not people you would normally think about. I want to talk briefly about a community that I wor worked on in the Middle East called iMatter. And iMatter came about because a job was put up on the Saudi Arabian site for Middle East Broadcasting which said, we're looking for a female newsreader. And if you could write us a short story on why you matter, on why women of Islam matter, we will interview for the job. And part of that was the understanding that women in Saudi don't often get an opportunity to get a lot of work experience. So an essay... Uh, would show their communication skills. Within a couple of hours, they had a couple of thousand submissions, and within three days, I think they had about eight or 9,000 submissions for this job. And a lot of the stories started with, I know I won't get this job. And even if I did, I know my family wouldn't let me take it, but let me tell you why I matter. So then there was the sort of thought, well, if this is such an overwhelming response to a job, perhaps we could build a community around it. So we decided to create a community called iMatter. When you enter into the site, when you come to the site, the woman's wearing a Taha and sunglasses, but if you log in, sorry, the image has gone fuzzy, um, then she's got the Taha's off, she's listening to music, and it's a very modern look and feel. And we ran campaigns 
throughout the community for many, many years. The community was there to support NBC4, which is the women's channel, which has Ellen and Oprah and all those kind of shows. I sometimes wondered whether the men in Saudi knew what those shows covered, but that's neither here nor there. The men won't watch those shows. They're women, it's a women's channel. And then every three months we ran campaigns, competitions, upload your photos, upload your photography, your poetry, um, upload business models that you think would be interesting and just continually ran campaigns, sometimes dovetailing into shows, sometimes not. Sometimes the community would come up with their own campaigns. But campaigns very clearly sit under a community strategy. And if I say to organisations, what's your social media strategy and what campaigns do you want to run, they often say to me, we've got a Facebook page and we're thinking of getting Twitter. And to me, they are tactics that should be part of ongoing campaigns, which should be part of an overarching strategy. And to answer the question, what do you, what is your, how do you get, how do you finish these projects? What do you do at the end of them? We actually aim not to. And if we have to shut them down, we have very clear exit strategies that we start on months beforehand. Don't do what Disney did, which was they put up on their website for kids, a kids game with millions and millions of kids playing this game. Thanks guys, we're shutting this down next week. The overwhelming number of parents that started Facebook pages and blogs and my daughter hasn't stopped crying herself to sleep for the last four nights because she's gonna lose her little online friends and and what about all the money we spend on dressing their online dolls, you know. Um, the anti-community was massive in the millions. So all of the goodwill that had been built up over a number of years of running this property uh, suddenly was as if it was nothing because now the name is mud. And when they came back a few months later and said, we've decided to create a new world, you can come and join the new world, the, this new anti-community went, are you kidding us? Why would we invest, why would we let our kids' hearts be broken again? So there's a lot of time and, and energy invested in communities by the community members themselves and they're very resentful when, when, the, when it's taken away from them. It's part of their life now. When I look at who is trustworthy or who's building their reputation in online communities, I want you to put yourself in, in the, I guess, mindset of you've just joined an online community and the first thing you do is you say, well, I'm not putting up where I live and I'm not putting up my surname and I'm not putting up my date of birth because the bank asked me that for verification purposes. I'll put up the minimum amount of information I can. So when we first join, whether it's MySpace or Facebook or Twitter, we don't put a lot of stuff up. We don't trust the social network. And by the way, the social network doesn't trust us. Why? Because we've just joined the social network and we're not putting up any information. You know, you see the first tweets of people and there are things like, is this thing on? Or how does Twitter work? Is anybody out there? Knock, knock, knock. All those kind of things. They were funny the first time you saw them. Don't do them again. <laughs> Um, and the same with Facebook. But once you've been on there for a while, you shift out of active reputation management into passive. And so the community member will start to add friends, change their avatar, upload content, connect with different groups, applications and widgets. 
Um, there's a group on Facebook called I Want to Slap Slow Moving People on the Back of the Head, of which there are millions of Australians on it. There's a Facebook page called No, I Don't Ride a Kangaroo to Work in Australia. Do You Ride an Obese American in USA? Again, about five million fans. Interestingly enough, about two and a half million of those are Americans, so I'm not quite sure what that says there. But, but um, you forget that your mum is your friend on Facebook or you've added the boss and suddenly you're getting messages from them. Did you really have to join that group or that page? So we get very passive very quickly. We trust our inner circle, the ones we're broadcasting to, and we forget about the invisible audience, the ones we're not interacting with a lot. From that, we naturally develop a reputation from the tone and the quality and the content. Don't go chasing bloggers that are rude and obnoxious all the time. There's no point. You won't get anything out of them that you can use. Find really influential bloggers that are at least open to the stories that you want to tell. So you have to match the tone and quality of what they do, not just audience numbers. This isn't broadcast media. You don't have to bring every journalist in and talk to them whether you personally like them or not. Um, you'll actually develop, they actually develop communities that match their tone. As I shift into the, uh, as they shift into trust, if you don't, if they don't like the trust element that they've built, they have to go back and improve their content, they have to improve the connections they're making and refine their profile and what they're placing up online. So these are the sort of things we look at when we build out large influencer lists for clients around film and TV properties. We rate those influencers and then we discover points of interest that they're talking about to connect social objects such as trailers and clips and games and different things with those influencers to make it really relevant to them. Because spamming an email with a PDF press release to a blogger is not going to, the best thing that can happen for you is they'll ignore it. Um, then we come to etiquette and the games. How do I behave? What is it that I have to do uh, in this space? And I would say, how do I behave is around gamification. What do I earn for the different things that I do? Do I get a badge? Do I get points? Do I get something else? It's a meritocracy. We often think that social networks are democracy and they're absolutely not. They do not choose officially representatives in that way. It's about people rising through merit. If you're part of that 1% that's creating deep story content, deep um, storylines and are interesting, you will gather a following because it's a meritocracy online. And it's a recognition culture. I want to give you a word of warning. Don't, don't um, accidentally reward bad behaviours. In one of the worlds, we created a prison and we would put naughty players in the prison, tell them not to log out till we'd spoken to them. And if they logged out, when they logged back in, they'd still be in prison and they wouldn't be able to get out. And of course, what they were all doing then was competing to be put in prison so they could take a screenshot and put it up online. So we went, okay, right, well, we will open up the prison and have tour days so that they can all do it. And then that way, manage the bad behaviours in some other way. And somehow the other, they managed to bring a cow in. I have no idea how they did that. <laughs> and a friend. Um, the campaigns and events should be in the community itself and is about entertain me. If you're there to market your film, forget about it. Seriously, because they will reject you as doing astroturfing, as trying to move in on their, in their space, um, as trying to hijack the community is what they, their term is for it. 
But if you can say to them, we've got some storylines, or if you're going to come in, play practical jokes on them, or do something along those lines, they often will be much more accepting of that. This is the diagram that I uh, have put together for all these different areas. You can download this off of Flickr. The final part, rituals and swarms, take you into what are the rituals? You know, is it a football-going community? Do they talk about footy? Is it a, a Christmas theme? Do you have to talk about different kinds of Christmas and come up with Christmas stories to talk about Christmas? Whatever the ritual is for the community, connect with that, and then connect with the sub-swarms. People unite on purpose, but they divide on values. They unite on how a film... They unite that a film should be made and then they'll divide on how that film should be made. They'll unite on politics and divide on what the politics should be. They'll unite on sports and then divide on what team is best. And it's, you know, they'll unite on X factor and divide on what team should win. So it's a classic behavior of online communities. Can I just do two more slides? Got a moment? Okay. Um, for the monetization side, I always look at the community and say that there are three elements. There's the member, there's the host, and there's the commercial clients. In this case, the member will pay donations, if you're thinking Kickstarter, that sort of thing, freemium. If you're looking at commercial clients, look at the trial affiliates through your mobile phone apps, uh, sponsorship of, um, we do video galleries for our TV shows and spons uh, get sponsorship around those. Advertising marketing intelligence, although don't forget Facebook's giving out their marketing intelligence for free now, so I'm not sure how much longer that'll be useful for, depending on how you extrapolate and build the story, I guess, from that. Member-to-member -member trading, where they can do a trade and then you get the clip of the sale, whether they're making music together or footage or whatever it is, and then you can take a, a slice of that, give them the social objects to play with, let them resell it, take a sale. And lastly, uh, being able to feed uh, the, uh, the sponsorship direct sales through to the, to the clients, to the people who are watching it. There's now TV shows where you can stop and click and buy the dress that you can see in the TV show because it's doing object identification and allowing you to complete the sale on top of the screen of the TV show that you're watching. Not so good if you want to watch the show from beginning to end, but might stop interruptive advertising. You can now interrupt yourself to buy things that you're seeing in the shows. And I wanted to add that in as the last part of online community building because not enough community builders think about the monetization element early enough. And coming back and trying to charge the community later on for something they've been getting for free is a hiding to nowhere. You need to be upfront with that as quickly as possible. And that's it, my nine steps of social media management. Okay. Yeah, I think I understand the question. If I could just rephrase it a little bit and you can tell me if I've got it right. Um, and just to give you a quote, Mark Zuckerberg said, uh, back then it was 500 million members on Facebook, not a billion. And he said, I don't have a network of 500 million members. I have 500 million social networks, meaning every person themselves is a social network 
aggregate and talk about things, um, not in the old style of having a forum that was dedicated on a particular topic or genre, which was in a sense much easier to feed to that community because they had a big sign up saying what they were interested in consuming. And I, I think that's tricky. I do think though that if you shift off of Facebook or you shift into really active parts of Facebook, you will see that the activity and the swarming behavior is there and that the deep content is there. Often though, Facebook is much better as a distribution channel rather than a content channel. Do you remember I talked about content and hub and spokes and distribution? Uh, so I wouldn't necessarily be trying to write a novel or put a film up on Facebook. I would be doing that off somewhere and then using Facebook to distribute and ask them to share it within their own niche communities. There is always an attraction to talking in depth. And remember, 17-year-old girls tribe up with other 17-year-old girls, and 55-year-old women tribe up with other 55-year-old women, and filmmakers tribe up with other filmmakers, and the only one that doesn't work for is lawyers, because no one's friends with lawyers, even other lawyers. <laughs> is anybody here a lawyer? <laughs> They're going to sue me. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> um, but, you know, that... that just remembering they're having those conversations anyway. How you track and manage those is going to be tricky. Facebook's very clear, you can do it through advertising using their marketing research tool, but getting them to open up Facebook discussions to public is an ongoing battle, and I don't think it will happen. But you can go on to public forums and it will happen. Leading multi-platform storytelling. Welcome to another Story Labs podcast. For more info, go to storylabs.us.